Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo and welcome to Music is Not a Genre, the interview edition. Thank you, as always, for joining me, whether you're joining me via audio on anchor.fm slash music is not a genre, uh, where you can also donate, uh, which would be great. Uh, it's streaming Spotify, Apple, or places like that. Uh, or if you are watching this on patreon.com slash music is not a genre, thank you for being a member there. And as always, you can see most of what I do at youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo. Uh, let's get right into it with me this week is Patrick Tape Fleming. He is a musician, producer, recording engineer. He has produced over 40 albums. We'll be talking about some of those later. He's a leader of the band slash solo project Gloom Balloon, who has released four albums and multiple singles and EPs over the last seven years. He's also in the band The Poison Control Center, who have released uh, over uh, twenty over the last twenty years, over three hundred songs, more than three hundred songs, and once played a show with Max Weinberg from Bruce Springsteen and elsewhere on drums. Patrick, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I I love the Max Weinberg uh, bit of trivia because that's that was a fun night for me. Uh, so yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about more of all of this, absolutely, including that. Uh, so many questions. So can you tell everybody uh, how we know each other? Uh, well, I was introduced to you through the internet world because I saw that you had done a podcast on the Elephant Six Orchestra. And I'm a huge fan of all things E6, especially the the you know, the bands, Olivia Tremor Control, who's my all-time favorite band, Apples and Stereo, Nutrimuck Hotel, Elf Power. Uh, I could go down the list, but um, my favorite band ever is the Olivia Tremor Control. And I saw that you had posted that podcast and our, yeah, podcast just about E6 in general. And I listened to it and watched it. And I was like, oh, this is great. Um, and it just so happens, like during that time, I had started kind of, of working on doing a film about Dusk at Cubist Castle, the Olivia Tremor Control's debut album, since it was the 25-year anniversary. I had contacted 
of Will Colin Hart from the band and asked if there was if they were doing anything special to celebrate the 25 year anniversary of the album, which is my all time favorite album. Mm-hmm. And his lovely wife was like, no. And uh, so I asked if I could kind of like, you know, try to get some people to uh, share stories and uh, find, you know, uh, footage of the band. And I have, you know, I have some of, of the actual recording sessions you know, like, so stuff that a lot of people have never heard before, or most people haven't heard before. Uh, so I had somebody send me that kind of stuff, you know, just like that kind of thing. And so what I'm doing is kind of collecting all that and making a film uh, to celebrate that album. And I contacted you because after I watched uh, your podcast, I kind of dug into your story. And in the podcast, even you were talking about like uh, Rec being, uh, you know, like there's similarities to some stuff like Apples and Stereo and stuff like that. So I, it made me want to check out your music. And then I did. And for the film I was doing, I was trying to get a bunch of bands to cover songs from Dusk at Cubist Castle. So I thought I would reach out and ask if you'd be interested in doing that. And then you did a fantastic uh, version of one of the Green Typewriter songs. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I found out about you and your music and your podcasting. And uh, now I'm, I've, I've dove in. So, (laughs) you know, if you listen to somebody who uh, does podcasts and you listen to their music, you kind of feel like even if you've never met them in real life and hung out, you kind of feel like, you know, them. so I feel like I I know you pretty good now. So, wow. Oh, this is interesting. Yeah, you're so right, though. you, You get that connection with somebody just based on watching them, especially if you're watching something where it's it's them and not them doing a character or something like that but it's actually that person speaking to you uh and i have to say that just from the moment we started to connect through the the elephant six group on on the internet i've have felt so welcome like just from you especially but everyone there is just so welcoming and and the fact that there's a community that's that's centered around this incredible music collective was just thrilling to me. And I guess you can find everything on the internet these days, but I, it's not something I ever actually looked up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, and I think that that's kind of the spirit of elephant six in general, it's, you know, so uh, everybody played in everybody else's bands and it was a bunch of big group of friends that were really passionate about music. And I think that that, you know, that E6 group, whatever on Facebook, I was never a person until the last few years who like joined groups on Facebook or, or interest groups. And now it's like, I was like, oh, these are my people. I kind of want to, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be in this party. And when I go see Wilco, I want to, I want to mention it on the Wilco fan board, you know, like that kind of thing. So um, it's a nice way to connect in times like this. And the E6 uh, group is just really fantastic because I, I do feel like it's just a, a big group of people who's, who are really excited about uh, music, you know? They are. And, and you know, yeah, I've, I had never really done a lot of that connecting either because it's sort of this lag time between, well, there wasn't an Internet and then there was, but there wasn't much there. And in that interim, we were just going to concerts and hanging out with the people that like the bands in real life yeah. and never even thought to, to do this online. And when I started podcasting in, in earnest, it dawned on me like, oh, you know, fans might actually like the band, you know, the podcast of the band that that I'm talking about that they're fans of. And why don't I give it a shot? So I had done it, you know, for a few other bands. But this the Elephant Six 
still, I think, is one of the has kind of the highest like uh, group participation and, and all of that. And I think you're right. I think it's because of the nature of Elephant Six itself. It attracts those kind of people. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing about and the thing I've learned from working on this film is there are a lot of other people out there who Dusky Cubist Castle is their favorite album ever, you know, and I knew that there were. But, you know, like it's 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 one of those things that never got big enough to where uh, you feel like it's so universal that, you know, everybody loves Radiohead or something, you know, like it's like it's like a thing that you feel like it's so close to you because it's a band that you've met or a band that you've seen or that you've listened to so many times. And I feel like Elephant Six, all of it, even the stuff that got really popular, you know, like of Montreal or, you know, Neutral Milk Hotel or something like that. Kevin Barnes of Montreal stayed at my house once, you know, and slept on my couch and and Neutral Milk Hotel. I have a great story about I got to bring Jeff to the airport and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's like these people, these are like uh, heroes of people who made like some of the, our favorite music of all time, but they're also the type of people who also love music and are like fanboys or fangirls of other people's music. So they get that, they get that connection to the fans. And, you know, the cool thing about that E6 uh, group is, you know, John Fernandez of Olivia Tremor Control, he's on there just as much as, you know, people who are fans of the music and he's interacting with people. I think that's very unique and very special and of something you don't see every day. And, And if you go to Athens, you know, like if you go there on tour or something, you just walk into Luxury Records where you would go anyway because it's the best record store. And there's John behind the counter working, you know, or like you see, you know, somebody who's in Al Power having a coffee down the street. You know, it's like magical when you can you meet your heroes. You know, I, I had a, our the Poison Control Center's old booking agent was this great guy named Sean. And he always, always said, don't ruin the mystery. He never wanted to meet REM because he's like, I don't want to know if Mike Mills is an asshole in real life. You know, he doesn't want to know that, you know, he's like, don't ruin the mystery. And I'm like completely the opposite. I'm like, if you meet one of your heroes, you got to buy him a beer and, and, and try to be their best friend, you know, or whatever. So, so I I love that. I love that attitude. And I'm curious, how did you end up meeting so many of these people? I think that way, a lot of times, Robert Schneider, for instance, the guy from the apples and stereo, I once drove 14 hours to see the zombies, uh, the sixties band, the zombies. Yeah, I love that. In Lexington, Kentucky on Valentine's Day. And not only did I meet Robert Schneider that night, but I met uh, Rod Argent and Colin Bunstone of the zombies. Like they were having dinner at the venue or by the venue. So I'm like, talk to them. They're like, oh, sit down. You know what? Cause I'm like, I came from Iowa. I drove 14 hours. And they're like, yeah. you can drive all the way across England like five times in 14 hours. You know? so, <laughs> so they were very sweet and like, you know, got to meet them. But then at the show, Robert was there and Robert has, you know, produced, Airplane Over the Sea by Neutral Milk Hotel. He's in the Apples and Stereo, produced Dusky Cubist Castle. You know, like he is like, as far as like recording stuff goes, like one of my peaks, you know, he is up there with like the Beatles and Dylan and, you know, George Martin and, you know, that kind of thing. Brian Wilson to me. And he's, he's an outgoing, crazy kind of like talkative guy too. And I was just like, hey, you know, da, 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 da. I drove all the way here from Iowa uh, you're one of my favorite producers. I love the apples and stereo. And I just love, uh, thank you so much for all the music you've created. Can I just buy you a beer? And next thing you know, um, I put out a seven inch record of his and I was invited to his wedding, you oh know, and, and, that, and then years later, Poison Control Center of uh, my band opened for her apples on tour, you know, oh. so 
it's just like you meet those, you kind of like, I think for him, he could see my enthusiasm in the things that he had created. And of course he, that's the way he would have been like meeting Brian Wilson or something of the beach boys. Mm. And so I think that they, they recognize that, you know, and then also you can treat them like a human being, you know, like you're, you can, you can be fanboy and they can know that, but you can also be like, okay, we're on tour with them. I know he's not going to want to talk about all the records he made all the time, you know, but if you just so happen while you're in New Jersey opening for them, just mention like, you know, that song, she's just like me off the Apple's first record. I love that song so much. It's really special to me. And then, you know, he comes out solo at the end of the show uh, to do an encore. And he's like, oh, this one's for Patrick. Uh, he's, I haven't oh, played man. for a long time. You know, like that type of thing. So I think that sometimes you just got to be your your real self in front of these people and it'll it'll t- it'll hit a nerve. And I think that's happened to me too. And I'm sure it's happened to you. Like when you're playing music, you know, somebody comes up to you after a show and it's like, oh, you know, that record you made, you know, that really meant a lot to me when I was 15 or I was going through something. You know, like that's, that's the power of music, of connecting. So I think that that's really magical. It's incredible. I think it's the reason why a lot of us do this other than the love of the music itself, but to have those kind of connections in person, online, wherever it is. And then to, you know, like you've said before, have connections with people who are actually your heroes and to be willing to risk finding out that someone's an asshole and and then discovering that they're not just a regular person, but they're actually a really cool regular person. Who's willing to engage with you on that level, not, you know, and certainly partly because you love their music, but they can see your honesty and kind of truthfulness just by the way you are. Like you said, you're just being yourself. And, and, you know, like I, I've definitely had those situations where I'm meeting somebody who uh, is a hero uh, and they're having a bad day, you know, and they're maybe not having, (laughs) not, uh, I, I once I used to work for Day Trotter. I don't know if you know what Day Trotter is. It used to be like a website that would record bands uh, sessions. It was very early in the internet. Anyway, I worked I worked for them, and I got the opportunity to go and be a part of their crew at South by Southwest. And they were recording all these great bands and stuff. And Yola Tango was coming in for a session. Yola Tango is one of my favorite bands ever. Yeah, and. Uh, of course, at the studio that we were in in Austin, like the toilet didn't work. And like somebody somebody had told them that they had this like synthesizer there that they could use. And of course, it was like back at the actual Day Trotter studio in the Quad Cities, Iowa, Illinois. And so like they kind of came in there and they were like, you could tell that they were like, uh, check mark, check mark, check mark, bummed, 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 bummed. Oh, we can't have like there's no monitors. There's we can't wear headphones. Boom, boom, boom. And I could see their their like level of enthusiasm of like we have like ten shows at South by Southwest. Why are we in this like sweat box with no toilet recording for this website? You know. Right. But you know, I, it was just like one of those things. I was just like, you know, they're setting up, and I could see they're frustrated, and like I know they're having a bad day, and I was just kind of like, would you guys, you know, play? you know, such and such song, you know, and they can see, then they're like, they instantly like snapped out and they're like, Oh, this kid's a, this kid who's like putting our mics up is like a fan. And we're like acting bummed, like let's, uh, you know, like let's turn it around. And they were like, they like looked at each other and was like, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. And then it was like, it was magic, you know, like they were just so good. And, and there's a picture of me handing uh, Ira from Yola Tango, like my band CD. And it was just like, I, and I'm sure they just like threw it away, right? In the van or whatever. Yeah, right, right. Like, uh, but it was just like, it was nice to see like, you know, like these people are real and you know how it is. Like 
it's not always easy touring or, or uh, setting commitments where you're like, oh, I have five shows this day or da, da, da. you know, like, it's just like, that's a lot of work. And it's like, uh, some things can be very disappointing. And you can tell the people who are like lifers and, and, and are really awesome people when, when they're having a bummer time and then they can just, you know, they can flip it around and be like, oh yeah, this, this, we're getting to play music at South by Southwest, this toilets, you know, not working. They don't have the synthesizer, but we're here. We're going to have a good time. And, and, you know, and you, so you can see the people who are like magic, you know, and they are magic. They are so good. It, yeah, there's something about they're in, they're in touch enough with themselves and kind of their humanity and the reality of the situation that they understand how great it can be if you're connecting like that. It's not just about the you get to a point where it's part of its drudgery or or you know repetition and all of that, but there's always an opportunity to spark something with someone else. Yeah, yeah, which I love. I so agree. you you've said so much, and I'd like to give everyone context. So as always, my, my next big question, can you tell everyone your story? Yeah, I mean, um, I think, uh, and I know that you mean like kind of musically and everything. I grew up in a small town in Northwest Iowa mm -hmm. and it's not the type of town, you know, 3000 people. It's not the type of town that anybody would want to be from or claim to be from or whatever. But I always say that like, I, I became a dreamer really early because it had like the best star uh, there was no light pollution in this town so you could see like millions and millions of stars so all it did was make me realize like oh god this universe is so big i i, I know i'm not going to be in this town my entire life mm. you know like there's there's so many things out there and you know i was i was lucky because i i had a family that kind of supported a dreamer you know like and 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 you know i think a lot of people I was privileged because I had parents and brothers and sisters who like who supported the going after your dreams or something. You know, mm -hmm. I think some people don't always get that when they're growing up. And I and I definitely got that. So I, I, I'm very grateful for that. And I know that everybody has the ability to dream. Uh, just sometimes it doesn't there's not the opportunity to open it up. One of my favorite songs ever is On the Nickel by Tom Waits. You know, it's about like homeless people in Los Angeles, but it talks about how even like the homeless people, you know, are like dreaming. They're still like, oh, I, I want to do this when I get, or, you know, I want to be this or, and I think that's really powerful that like somebody who can be on like skid row or dire straits or like in total survival mode, they still have dreams. They still like uh, have ambition to do other things. And um, so I'm very grateful that I was like uh, in a, in a position to have somebody whether it be parents or friends or family, just be like, yeah, go after your dreams, you know, do that kind of thing, you know? And so musically, I think I reached my peak in about high school when I was playing a plastic baseball bat in front of a mirror, you know, like, you know, <laughs> I didn't have a guitar yet, but I was like, you know, I had a fake band and I was like, you know, working on my moves and, and stuff like that. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, I just really, I was really drawn to music. And the thing that really like made me want to do it was seeing Ferris Bueller's day off when I was like seven years old. Oh. And I was like, he's singing, he's singing twist and shot up on the float. I want to do that. You know? Yeah. And the cool thing is about being from Iowa and not really having any sort of like, I never went to like music school or, uh, my family wasn't really that musical. 
but but they liked music you know it's like one of those type of things like uh, my dad had Bob Dylan's greatest hits in the in the car, you know, like and so like I I had a little education, but not like not like you, for instance, who had like a, a dad who was like living and breathing this day in and day out. Right. And I think that was to my benefit because then it made me like I, I do think my my parents gave me like kind of an entrepreneurial spirit since my family owned like a family business. And so I just kind of learned everything I could about every aspect of music so whether it be like recording my own music on a four track uh writing my own songs teaching myself how to play uh booking my own tours booking other people's shows you know recording you know all that type of stuff I learned all of it and so I liked all the aspects of it too I liked like working on my own press releases and like you know you know, all that type of stuff. So like, if you, even if you're not very good at music, if you have a little, if you're good at, if you're good at all the other little things that go along with it, or can, can kind of contribute to it or hang with other people, then it, it kind of works. And so when I was 19 years old and I left my small town, I right away moved in with a couple of older people who I joined a band with. And my great grandma left me some money uh, after she passed away and we bought a bunch of recording gear and just started recording bands out of our basement. And then that leads to uh, a lot of fun collaboration. And then you're like, oh, now we have these albums. Now we got to like find out who will play them. And the next thing you know, a band that recorded in your basement is like on CMJ charts. And then it's like, oh, now that they're on this, you know, on college radio, we got to book tours, right? So you just figure out how to do it. And, and I've been lucky enough to uh, kind of dabble in all that stuff. And I'm so interested in so many different things that it's it's fun for me. So like, I'm really interested in film. So it's like, I like to uh, make music videos or I like to, you know, I want to make a documentary about my favorite band, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, you know, well, you said a bunch of interesting things, but um, easy question. What was your family business? Um, it was a printing company. At one point, it was like the largest printing company in America that dealt with funeral home products. Oh, so that was their main business was like doing books and cards and stuff like that, that you would get at funerals of uh, now people, you know, the printing industry has changed like everything else with the internet, you know, like it's people can print their own stuff off or, you know, you can call a uh, whatever Vista print and have eight by tens made of you for your little rock and roll band and have them in two days, you know? So the the industry is kind of shift. And now their main focus is they do canvas portraits. So if somebody dies, you know, the family can bring a photo to the funeral home and then the funeral home will send it to my family's company. And then 24 hours later have like a nice canvas print that they can have by the casket oh, or something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, but it's a company that, you know, like employs like 40 some people in a small town of 3000 people. So it's kind of a, you know, I think my, my family had the choice to move it, you know, years ago and they didn't because I think they wanted to, they couldn't do that to the small town, you know what I mean? Even though we probably all wanted it to move to Minneapolis when we were like 10 years old, <laughs> but you know, I think it's been in the family for like over 90 years now. And it started off kind of as like a newspaper. So it's like, Oh. It's really cool that uh, we still have it. Unfortunately, none of my parents' four children wanted to move back to that small town and run it, you know? Oh, wow. And my dad passed away in February, so it's kind of like in oh. its first real shift of owners or whatever, for or not owners, but like uh, people who are running it, I guess. In the 70s, my dad was a professional umpire, and then his dad passed away uh, of a heart attack at 46, so my mom and dad had to move 
back from Florida to run the family company. So I also think that that is one of the reasons that I always went after my own dreams because I knew that my dad kind of gave up his to do the thing for the family. Mm. And so I was always empathetic of that. And he was always one of those people who are like, yeah, I know you're 25 and you should be like, you know, trying to work a real job, but yes, you can go on tour and, and, you know, or whatever, or like, we're going to support, we're going to support you uh, that you want to move home and move all your crap here so you can go on tour and, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So that which actually leads to my next question, I, I found it interesting that you said that there was a there was a different way, I think, that you approached kind of developing all the skills you have and that you have such a diversity of skills that go beyond just being good at music and creating your own music and, and all the other things you do but the business part of it, I like, like you said, partly because your family owned a business because so you could kind of see from the inside what it meant to have every aspect of a business running, you know, but also because you, again, as you said, you didn't have uh, the, a dad, you know, or family experience the way I had. I always wonder, and I, and I'm, you know, I have a suspicion, you know, and I'm sure it's different for everyone, but when you are, brought up in an environment that is as encouraging as both of ours were that's that to me is almost step one like you have to be a nurtured in a certain way and then step two is the desire to want to do it let's say and, and really want to make that part of your life or your whole life but then there's that kind of element that i think is different where when you grow up in that world the way the way i did there are certain, I found there were certain aspects that were handed to me in a certain way. I, I saw the the ease with which my dad did certain things and say, okay, I can do that. And, you know, maybe I'll be different, but it's still, the, the certain elements were the same. And so it took me a while to get to a point where I understood that it takes more than being a part of that world to be good at it. You have to you have to have your own personal drive and effort. And from what I've seen, and maybe you have this experience, to not have grown up with a family like that, you kind of knew from the get-go that you you needed to do this yourself. You needed to figure it all out yourself. Yeah. And every step of the ladder is like a new conquer. You know, I feel like with yours, you know, you probably have a little bit of the Jacob Dylan syndrome, you know, I mean, like the poor guy, you know, like uh, he's like, oh, I wrote this hit one headlight, you know, like it's a great song. Da, da, da. And everybody's going to be like, well, come on, your dad wrote 300 great songs. You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah. you know, every time. I, you know, the first time I ever called a booking agent and booked a show, you know, this was before uh, the internet or something, you know, it's like, I'm like, yeah, you know, like you have all these like little, little steps that you do have to take when there's nothing kind of like given to you. And that, and that, and that can also, that can be ego deflating, but that can also be really uh, exciting and rewarding. And then of course, when you're doing it with your friends, you know, and you're all in the same boat of like, yeah, we don't know what we're doing. Let's let's hit record and let's see what this compression button does. You know, like <laughs> it's all very, very, very exciting. And I don't think I ever lost that enthusiasm of that I had as like a 19 year old kid who's like hitting record for the first time on a computer. You know, like I, I, I as in high school and all the way through when I was 19 years old, I'd never recorded all my stuff was analog, you know, like on four tracks or going to a studio. And it was like, an ADAT or something, you know what I mean? Like it's all like 
all stuff that's like pretty foreign to most people now. True. But I can remember like, oh my God, I can put 20 tambourines on this song if I want to. <laughs> let's try it. You know, like, let's do yeah. it. You know, like, uh, it's awesome. just great. All that stuff is very exciting. And I, and I feel like I wish I still had now when you make music as, you know, I'm 41 years old, uh, you know, my last record, I, you know, th- I could not not think about what kind of, audience would be listening to it or i could not not think about like oh uh should the record label get 300 copies on vinyl or 500 do i think i'm going to go on tour and sell five you know like there's all these things that like as a 19 year old you're just like let's hit record and go you know and i miss that aspect of it and i'm and i'm hopefully gonna try to just get back to that at some point you know like where you're just like making music to make music you know and i feel like that's it's it's hard to do when you've done it as like a career, you know, or. Yeah. Well, and that's that's interesting because I come I mean, I'm sure we have similar experiences, but I come at it from almost the other end, which is I grew up and kind of continued to hold on to that. Nothing is more important to me than just being where I am making the music and then sharing it with people. And it was a kind of a begrudging growth to get all of the other, you know, skills in order enough to make any headway with anything. And and that's still that, you know, there's still even a still a struggle, you know, in there to be like, I I would rather someone else just sweep in and take care of it and I'll make sure they do it right. But I just, please take care of that for me, you know, and, and I don't get the same maybe kind of joy that you do with all of those aspects. The only thing that really keeps driving me to stay in what I'm doing is always going back to the music because that's really, that's like, you know, 90% of the joy and everything else is 10%. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's that's super interesting that you say that because uh, my old band, the Poise Control Center, our last tour, we did 284 shows in 13 months. So we put out two albums. One was a double LP and one was a single LP and played 284 shows in 13 months. The shows, of course, were very important to us. And, you know, I feel like 280 out of the 284, we played well, you know, maybe not great. That's great maybe not perfect, but like good enough to be like, okay, we're not getting into a fight after the, you know, the show in a band. <laughs> why'd you, why'd you get too drunk and you know, whatever. But the thing is the only way that we could have done that tour is if we kind of did flip the scenario, right? Because the music was made, we weren't being that uh, creative on the road. So like the touring thing kind of became like a game of monopoly, right? So it's like one of us is like real good with numbers. So it was like, okay, we need to make $72 at this show to pay for enough for gas, for enough for everybody to have a $10 per diem and, you know, enough to like put $20 in the band fund, you know, to, to get, when, once we get to the next town. And then every four days we picked names out of the hat on who was like the DD in, all right, no, no drinky in Cincinnati for you, you know, like you have to be the DD and you have to be the band manager that night and you have to make the set list that night and you have to make sure everybody gets back to wherever we're staying safely, you know? So it became like a thing where everybody had all these roles and maybe I was like doing the PR stuff and one of them was doing the blogging for the band and one, you know, like, so um, it was kind of cool that we had 
uh, we had to deal with all those little things because otherwise it wouldn't work. And and on that tour, we did have a booking agent, which was, of course, taking up a lot of time booking all those shows. But uh, we didn't have a tour manager. We didn't have, you know, and we weren't the type of band that was making tons of money. Right. You know, like there was there was um, I, I always put, I always use this as an example when I'm telling people about that tour. We did a house show in Cedar Falls, Iowa on September 10th, 2010. And uh, it was to like 20 to 30 people, right? So you're making maybe a hundred bucks. Then the next night we opened for Pavement, who's like my third favorite band of all time in right. Kansas City to 2,400 people who have all paid $57 and it's sold out theater. And then the next night we're back in the DIY space to like 15 people, right? Oh. You know, so it's like, so you have those like ebbs and flows and you have to like, know that the van is going to break down at some point. You have to know that, you know, one of the guys in the band is going to be not in a good mood. He's going to be homesick. You got to know that like, I'm vegan. So you got to know that like, well, all you're going to eat tonight today is the almonds that you bought at the gas station. So just, just be like, you know, like, but, but you're getting to play a show every night in a new town and you're getting to meet people and you, you know, like you're getting to do the thing that you love. So you have to make all those sacrifices, but it becomes like a game of monopoly or chess, like moving all the little pieces around to try to make it work. And and then as that tour went, it was working more, you know, like we were getting reviewed on Pitchfork. We were getting, you know, like there were things happen, you know, like, but it was because we were working hard and trying to do all the little things. And maybe what we really wanted to do was just be at home making music. You know what I mean? You know? Yeah. But you knew it was important to do all that. And I think it sounds like you you had just, the band was a great team. Definitely. I feel like we were probably, at least on that tour, a four-headed monster of like just trying to survive. Because we had, we had said like, all right, we're going to do this for a year. Because we had been a band for like 10 years up to that point. And we'd done quite a bit of touring, but it was, you know, like nothing over three to five weeks in a, in a year, you know, like we'd, sure. we'd play a lot during weekends cause we're from middle America. So we could go to Chicago or Minneapolis or Kansas city or Omaha, wow. you know, like just on weekends, but like we, you know, it was very rarely that we did tours that were longer than three to five weeks. Uh, so we were like, we're going to do this for a year and we have to, you know, we have to survive. So you have to figure out like, okay, we need to make $52 every night this week to be above even, you know? Right. And we were giving each other a $10 a day per diem. So you would get $10 out of the band fund to like That's cool. eat, right? Right, <laughs> or, right. Or, or you spend it on, you know, uh, a latte and, and two beers and you're like, cut. You, know? right. <laughs> you, better hope, you better hope there's some chips and salsa at the venue or something. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. The free food. Yeah, so now that band, the Poison Control Center, you said it started in 2000, right? Yeah. The same four guys those 10 years or? Uh, well, when it started, I had just moved to Ames, Iowa, and I was pretty much asking everybody and their dog to be in the band, even if they uh-huh. didn't play music. Right. Nice. So I would, I was like, I was going to a community college and uh, I just told this story to my girlfriend the other day. I was like, yeah, I saw this girl who was writing a, a, a paper on ska music. I could see over her shoulder that she was like, and I was like, oh, are you into music? And, and she was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, do you play an instrument? She's like, well, I played clarinet in high school. And I was like, you want to be in my band? You know, like, <laughs> awesome. uh, I was like so into like Elephant Six stuff at the time where there was like horns and singing saws and all this stuff that I was just like, I just want to get a big group of people together and make a noise. Because I had this like basement with a little recording studio in it. And so 
Poison Control Center initially, the first show we ever played, uh, I think we had like 15 people on stage. And then the second show, we had 25. It was like one of those type of things. Yeah. But I will say out of the 25 of us who were on stage, at times, maybe like seven of them were actual like musicians. Sure. So, yeah, right. But, <laughs> but I would rather take somebody who's gung-ho and like full of enthusiasm over somebody who's uh, technically uh, prowess like Van Halen. I totally agree. Yeah. Because uh, you don't have to be good to be good. But I will say that it, 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 of course, as anything would, it dwindled down to the survival of the fittest because, you know, somebody who maybe is not writing songs or like is just playing a singing saw doesn't want to drive four hours on a Tuesday night to play to 20 people in Minneapolis. Yeah. So it dwindles down to survival of the fittest. So from about 2005 on, it was just four people. Oh. Um, but all four of those people wrote songs. So it was like everybody was contributing songwriting wise. And so it became very collaborative. And then on, a, on that last big tour, our drummer, who's a fantastic songwriter, uh, Don Curtis, he was the guy who like wrote the, the, the poppy hits, but was also the drummer, but also is very smart. And he, you know, was a professor and then he got a job at Google and he's like, I'm not going on tour for a year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I can hardly hang out with you fuckers for a weekend. I don't want to go on tour for a year. Uh, <laughs> so we got, so we, so we uh, asked the best drummer in our town, if he wanted to go on tour for a year and he was like, let's do it. And so for, for our last record, uh, the final record, it's, it's a different drummer. Okay. I got gotcha. you. You know, that that initial uh, iteration of the band, it reminds me, and it might have been around the same time, too. There was a group, I think they were called the Polyphonic Spree. Yeah, we were pre-Polyphonic Spree. You were pre? We were pre. We were pre. Wow. Um, we were pre-spree. Yeah, uh, <laughs> pre-spree. Pre-spree. Uh, yeah. But I love Polyphonic Spree. Uh, yeah. we, started, uh, we started actually recording together in 99, 2000, Polyphonic Spree didn't come around until 2001, 2002. But I am a huge Tripping Daisy fan, which Tim DeLaher of Polyphonic Spree, that was his previous band. Oh, shoot. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, so Jesus Hits Like the Atom Bomb, which is the uh, Tripping Daisy record that came out in 97 or 98. That was one of those albums that I would play in front of my mirror in high school with my plastic baseball bat, oh. acting like it was my own album excellent yeah uh, so that uh so even though we were pre-spree we were definitely influenced by the spree nice not right right now you sent me links to a bunch of things but I, I don't think i got one for poison control center is there a place people can hear the music oh yeah of uh, i would say that like 75 percent of our output or 70 percent of it is on Bandcamp. our our, our kind of big full-length albums are Technically, the record label still owns those, I think. Well, kind of, I guess. I don't know. You know, it's one of yeah. those type of things. Yeah. Uh, so those are on Spotify and all that kind of jazz. And then I think on Amazon, you can still buy the vinyl and stuff like that. Okay, cool. I'll include that uh, one or two of those in the in the text then. Because, yeah, I'd like to hear it myself, actually. Uh, which brings me, I guess, to the next uh, project, which is Gloom Balloon. And I heard some of that music... Uh, Wow, I love your production. First of all, just incredible. Thanks. I like making I like making records. So I think that uh, when Poise Control Center stopped, I wanted to do something completely different. 
both on stage and in the studio. So I kind of, because, you know, Poise Control Center is a rock and roll band. And whenever we made something in the studio, we like to, you know, embellish things or have strings on it and horns and, and stuff like that. But basically we were, you know, four guys with guitars and drums and, and rocking out, you know, after doing that for so long. And I was very depressed when that band, when that tour ended, because I knew that we were going to be taking a break or be on hiatus or not make music for a while. So I got kind of bummed out. And then I, uh, I was like, well, you don't have to, it's kind of like a marriage, you know, like you're, I was married to that band for 12 or 13 years and all of my creative output was centered around that. And then it was very freeing to find out that you don't have to be, you can do other things, you know? Yeah. So that's where Gloom Balloon came around. And uh, I, yeah, I just wanted to, Gloom Balloon is, was just a thing where I want, I still, I kind of wanted it to go back to the days of uh, how Poise Control Center started, where I just asked a lot of people to play on it and try to produce it. I mean, I play a lot of stuff on it and write all the songs, but like, you know, I have a, a a guy who does string arrangements and this incredible woman named Tina Haas Finley who sings all these amazing uh, girl parts and like, yeah, uh, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, because when I, when I write a song and I'm, and I don't know if you're this way, you have a better voice than me. So when I write a song, I always hear Paul McCartney singing it in my head. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh man, I got a hit here. Yeah. You know? And then it's like, Oh yeah, it's still me singing. It's still me, not a hit. But you know what I mean? So like having yeah, other yeah. people, you know, the last few records, I've written mostly everything on piano and I'm not, uh, I can remember listening to one of your podcasts where uh, the guest was like a, you know, kind of a piano virtuoso at the age of like five. Uh, I'm still, I'm like 41 and I'm, I, I wouldn't even get the V for a virtuoso. I just, <laughs> yeah. oh, the yeah. end of the, oh, uh, but I but I really like writing songs on piano because it's it's um, it still feels foreign to me, even though I've been doing it a long time nice. compared to a guitar. And I, I hit things that I wouldn't normally where I would normally go if I was just on a guitar, because it's still like I'm like, what am I doing here? Right. Uh, and it feels good. Uh, but, you know, on the record, at least on the last record, I mean, I play piano on quite a few of the songs, but like, it's always better if you get somebody who actually knows how to play piano <laughs> and, and like have them play the piano. It's like yeah. you wrote it, but then you show it to them and then they can do the little like the little whistles and stuff that you wouldn't be able to do and stuff like that. And then it's just fun for you to be like, get into the producer role, which is where I feel like if I have a skill in music, that's maybe where it's more towards than actually playing or even writing. It's like, I like to, I love sound and I love to create things and I love to get people together to finish a project through. I, I, I really loved doing that for uh, other people's bands, but also for the Gloom Balloon stuff. It was, it's, it's, but it was definitely a collaborative thing, even though I was kind of like the fire starter or something. You yeah, know? the driving force, yeah. Well, and you can hear that in what, I mean, look, we all like all kinds of music, but I think I gravitate more towards music that you listen to it once and it hits you and you say, wow, but if you listen to it again, you're going to catch things that you didn't hear the first time. And that kind of production style has always been the most attractive to me. And you've produced, I mean, we'll just talk about it now because you gave me an awesome list and I, I listened to Christopher the Conquered, which is very different from Gloom Balloon, you know? And then uh, some other bands that uh, you mentioned, Dollfish, Wolves in the Attic, Menorcan, Twins, Ticey Boy, Foxholes, Pink Neighbor, Quick Piss, Wet, 
Pookie Bloom, Derek Lambert and the Prairie Fires and more. And I imagine that you correct me if I'm wrong, but as a producer, you're you're getting material, whether it's your own or these bands that has its own qualities. And then you're working to find ways to bring those qualities out and maybe enhance them with whatever else. Yeah, I feel like that's at times as a producer, I can just kind of sit back and be a cheerleader. But at times I feel like I can hopefully get the best out of the artist, you know, in whatever situation you're in of, for instance, the Dollfish record I recorded, which ended up being on Afternoon Records, which at the time was like a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. So like it had it had some like financial backing to it. Like it was, you know, like there was like no no worry about like, oh, are we going to get this pressed on CD and vinyl? You know, it wasn't that type of thing. But I think we recorded that record for 10 bucks. Dollfish spent 10 bucks on some tape, some analog tape. And we used my tape machine and we went to uh, my friend's basement because he was going to be out of the basement working and it had a bunch of musical stuff in it. And we knew that we could have him play on it after he got off work and other things. So we just, you know, had a Neumann U87 microphone and a tape machine. And and that and and it probably didn't even cost 10 bucks because I don't even think we used that tape because it was all messed up. Oh, no way. Uh, so we just used tape that I already had. But anyway, so, you know, I knew that the guy was like, he liked lo-fi music and his music that he had made before was lo-fi. And so there's no reason when he asked me to produce it, I was like, well, where do you want to do it? How do you want to do it? You know? And he's like, well, I'd love to just be comfortable where I'm at. And I was like, all right, let's, what do you think about doing it in the house and just kind of like uh, doing it, you know, DIY style and just see what happens. And if we don't spend any money on it, then if it doesn't work, we can go do it somewhere else, you know? And it was great. You know, it was just like, it was great to just, you know, again, flip the tape machine on, move mics around and see what you get. And the great thing about Dollfish, the reason that he was on that record label that, you know, he's just a great songwriter. And a good song is a good song, whether it's recorded on a on a boom box or in a fancy studio, you know? So it was my job in that to enhance these great songs in some way, shape or form that made it interesting to the listener. And I had the opportunity of, you know, one thing I always say when I'm producing somebody is like, Every idea is a good idea until proven guilty. It doesn't, it does not matter who has the idea. We should try the idea. You'll know if it's proven guilty. You'll know if it's, if it's not a good idea, right? You'll see somebody in the room space go like, you know, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then you might tell that person to fuck off because you think it's still a good idea. Right. (laughs) Uh, So we tried lots of things, you know, like we put the microphone upstairs and just had him play a piece of guitar at that. And I was downstairs with another microphone, like uh, trying to get feedback stuff to happen while the tape machine, while speeding up and slowing down the tape, you know, just like things like that, that, that if you were in a studio paying for it, you know, you're like, well, that, that experiment that went wrong just cost us $70. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And you record at home and, and do a lot of recording at home. So you get that uh, aspect of, of you can really uh, just be creative however you want to be. And mind you, Dollfish didn't live in Iowa, but he came here to record it. So we had like five days to make this record. But like we took what we had with the elements that we were giving. And I think that we created this really interesting sounding record that doesn't sound like anything else because of where it was made and how it was made. Now, do the flip of that and that Christopher the Conquered record, when he asked me to produce that, I was like, uh, where do you want to record? He's like, well, I want you to pick the studio because I want you to be the producer and I want you to help me pick the songs, help me, you know, produce it, the arrangement, oh, wow. you know, all that stuff. 
And I said, well, I want to thinking, you know, he's going to call bullshit on this. I was like, well, I want to do it at Ardent Studios in Memphis, you know, where like Big Star and R.E.M. and, you know, Bob Dylan. I mean, Disco Duck was recorded there, you know, like... (laughs) Uh, you know, that type of thing. So, I mean, it has a wide range of from Disco Duck to uh, Cat Power and the White Stripes or something, you know. And he was like, all right, let's do it. You know, even though he knew that it was going to cost thousands and thousands of dollars, we did it there. And of course, like we did a bunch of pre-production on that record. I would go to the practices and we would like, you know, he would ask questions about arrangements and all this stuff. And we had a really tight unit, his, his live band that he was playing with are just super talented guys. And the drummer and the bass player ended up playing on Gloom Blue and stuff because they're just so good. I wanted them on that. Oh, but wow. uh, and Chris, the Chris for the Conquer plays on Gloom Blue and stuff too. But anyway, so we oh, went man. to Arden and just magical to work in a studio that is like, you know, they just have like runners, right? You know, like they just have like, oh, you guys need anything? It's like, well, no, we just we we're gonna go to the record store down there. such and such wanted to pick up the birds record that he saw there the other day, and the runners like, well, I'll still get it for you. You know, like, oh, <laughs> you know oh. those type of studios where you're like you do not deserve some 19 year old intern to run to the record store to right. for you uh, or go get you coffee or lunch or something while you're working. But it's like, this studio was incredible. And the engineer we had there was, it was incredible. And we just made that record in like, I think we recorded it in three or four days and then mixed it in four or five days. And we had uh, singers from Memphis, female background singers who like sang on like U2 records and Primal Scream records and that kind of stuff. So it was like, we were making a big boy record. Right. And yeah. so our motto was like, go big and go broke instead of like, go big or go home. You know, Oh, nice. it was incredible. It was, you know, like to, to have the opportunity to produce a record in a basement and then produce a record in like one of the finest studios ever. You go about producing records in a different way in those situations. And so I'm happy that I've gotten to experience both, I guess. Well, and that you're, you know, malleable enough, adaptable enough to do both, because there are producers who are very strict about how they produce and where they produce and will only do same things a certain way. And you just you're you're all over in like the best way possible. I try to be. Well, I really like making records. It doesn't matter. Like if if you said like, hey, you want to get together for a weekend, I have a tape recorder and a radio shack mic and a guitar and a keyboard you want to make a record i'd be like yeah i want to make a record like that oh you know? man awesome <laughs> so that's that's the kind of and i think you know as we get older and we have you know children or other responsibilities jobs stuff like that you know like mm-hmm. you kind of uh maybe make less records than you were at one point when you were a jobless not father you know or something you know or you get you get distracted by the other stuff because you then you want to go play shows or like you want to you know i did get to make a record last year in los angeles for a guy named ticey boy i produced it and it was actually it just got its finished mix and chris walla of death cab for cutie mixed it uh which is interesting because i think that our rough mixes were on par with his mixes but i'm excited for it to come out and, you know, it's fun for me to go to Los Angeles kind of right when, you know, people were getting vaccinated and stuff that I could go and do that because I hadn't been to Los Angeles since I was like, since the band was touring a lot. So that I had only ever been there either with family or the band. So you never have time to go and do things. So every morning I would run to like a different rock and roll treasure. So like, I'm like, all right, this morning I'm going to run to Sunset Sound or I'm going to run to, you know, all these places where all these magical records that I love so much were made. And so I'm like running in the morning. I'm like, all right, I'm going to take a picture next to the Troubadour. And it's like, you know, oh yeah, (laughs) that type of thing. So I never really liked Los Angeles when we were a touring musician because it just kind of felt like 
it was always kind of a bummer and too big and you never got to do anything. And so it was fun for me to just like be making a record in the town where I know where all this amazing music has been made. And so I wanted to like touch that music somehow, even though it didn't have anything to do with, you know, I knew I was going to be making, making a record for 12 hours every day. I wanted to spend two hours of it being a, a music nerd and going and touching buildings where, you know, the phones are recorded or something. Do you feel like, I'm kind of going off the Foo Fighters series Sonic Highways there, but do you feel like experiencing that city had any influence on how you produced the music? Uh, yeah, I do, because I think that the only reason I was out there producing it is because my former record label head had gotten demos from this guy and they thought they needed work. So he contacted me. He's like, you might want to do this. You're in the the mode right now where you could maybe, it might be beneficial to you to do some music stuff. So he contacted me and I was like, well, I think there's like, these songs are pretty cool. And, and this guy had already, you know, like he used to be in a pop punk band that was like on a major label and stuff. So, I mean, he's been in that world. And now the guy is trying to be kind of like a singer songwriter of, which is kind of the world I've been producing in the past, whatever, 10 years. Yeah. So so we talked on the phone he was like yeah i would love to work with you and like uh you know he shared a lot of music with me and then you know he flew me out there and and i knew in the back of my head that this guy i think just being in la you have a little your knob is turned a different way than maybe mine is being from iowa he 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 has that like okay like I need to do this. I need to do this. And then I get a manager and I play a showcase. And then, then I do, you know, you know, that kind of mindset where I'm like, uh, all right, let's get together and make some music and try to make it as cool as possible. Right. Yeah. Um, so I do think that there was, and the style of music he was making is maybe different than what I come from. It was very more modern and more poppy and not poppy like the kinks or the Beatles poppy, like marshmallow poppy. Do you know this okay. group? <laughs> you know, yeah, whatever. Song, but, yeah. but like in like a, a singer songwriter mode, you know, like he wants like, you know, there's like uh, if he wants like vocoder or like or not vocoder, like pitch shifter on his voice or, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Uh, that's that's kind of foreign to me. But that, so that was good to know that, like, OK, we are going for a very modern. So so I got to bring things from my world into it with like horns and and, you know, maybe like a more like 60s, 70s pop influence into his like very modern influences and the guy's a lot younger than me too that you know would help with that yeah and the gal uh who engineered it did a great job of capturing sounds and i think you know and then chris wall of Def cab for cutie uh mixed it so i mean i think there's potential for it to be heard by a lot of people but i do think i i did i did know in the back of my head that like this person wants this to be something that somebody could do a dance to on tiktok right 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 yeah but, but but the songs are still very kind of heartfelt and like uh heartbrokeny melancholy so i mean oh, nice. you have that dichotomy i guess i'm curious to hear it now you say it's coming out soon uh well it just got mixed it's it's done uh so we'll see when it comes out but i you know you know how that is yeah uh, <laughs> uh i feel like uh it's taking a lot more time to, to put records out if you want to do like the whole like vinyl and and prep it and press and all that stuff and i think that he is in that world of like try to get a label and da 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 so who knows? it could be like oh, okay. years before it comes who out knows, it could never, right, right. never come out or it could be like or he might just get sick of it and be like well we're putting this up on Bandcamp on friday and let's get on to the next yeah thing. yeah 
but um, yeah, the artist is called Ticey Boy. And, yeah. and it's like seven or eight, eight songs, nine songs, maybe. Okay. Um, but the guy has written a lot of songs in the past couple of years. So um, I think he's, he's hit on some creative, you know, I think everybody as a songwriter at some point gets in that mode where you like, you know, 20 or 30 songs plop out of you in yeah. a year. You know, yeah. I haven't had that in a while, but maybe I'm more picky now than I once was. <laughs> but he had that. And I think it was um, good to pull him out of his bedroom and try and write songs and put him into a studio to like make them, you know. Wow. Yeah. Different environment. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the the, the film that's coming out soon. Yeah. Uh, so it's called The Realized Film, Dusk at Cubist Castle. Uh, why don't you tell everyone why you called it that and then more more about it in general? Yeah, well, again, uh, the Olivia Sherman Control is my all-time favorite band. And this year, on August 6th, it was the 25-year anniversary of their debut album, Dusk at Cuba's Castle. And in the rock and roll world, if you're a rock and roll fan, that you know that 25 years from your first record is when you are eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, I know that, unfortunately, the Olivia Tremor Control, even though they are uh, they are in my Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, will probably never be in the actual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But it doesn't mean they shouldn't be celebrated. And great works of art should always be celebrated because they're uh, about the greatest gift you could give to somebody. And this album in particular is my favorite album. And from a guy who uh, loves music so much, and it's like... Um, you know, music is like a, 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 a live or die type of thing for me. And, uh, and this album makes me uh, want to live so much. It's, it's so special to me. And uh, so I wanted to celebrate it in some way, shape or form. And I love film. And this past year, uh, I've been going through quite a bit of stuff. And I wanted to do something that was not uh, myself ego driven and uh you know kind of be of service to somebody else and this band i feel like has been a service to me just as a as a fan for so long that i wanted to do something kind of special for them mm. uh so i reached out to them and, and 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 asked if there was anybody kind of doing anything special for the 25 year anniversary of this record and they're not and one of the reasons that it's not is because one of the members bill doss passed away mm -hmm. uh years ago and the first ever gloom balloon record is actually the second half of that is dedicated to Bill Doss. It's all songs. Uh, that's how special this band is to me. Yeah. And I started asking around people who I knew that were influenced by this band. And, you know, and I started thinking like, yeah, there's, I think there's potential there to put something that's fan made together with old footage of, uh, with some unreleased uh, recordings that I have of the sessions. Uh, I know I've, I'm lucky enough to know, you know, Robert Schneider who produced the record and, and the band members I've gotten to all meet, excuse me. So reaching out to them and seeing if they'd like to be involved. And then also reaching out to other musicians who probably are commercially way surpassed Olivia Tremor Control, but were influenced by the, the music. And then also reaching out to a lot of other people who um, who are in, influenced or appreciative of this music. And so instead of me being like the director of this film, I'm kind of just a big, I'm the collector of this film. So I'm asking all of these fans to be like, hey, can you film yourself talking about, uh, and you did it, film yourself talking about this record and why it's important, why you think it's monumental and why what's your favorite songs and why why is it so special why did this band 
click on something that was so poppy and so exuberant and sunshiny, but also can have this avant-garde side and like meld these two worlds together into something that is just mind boggling that it was even made. And so I started reaching out to people and people were excited about it. And then I got, I got upon the idea, like, well, it would be very cool to end this film with an entire version of the album, but by other, by other artists. Uh, so I started asking people like yourself if they would cover a song from this record. And mind you, this record is so strange sounding and like a big melting pot of all these, you know, genres and and sounds and, and weird stuff that it, it that it kind of works that like 20 some different artists would come together and do it because like when I have all the recordings of all these things and I put them I line them up and I kind of make them flow together and so I'm like it sounds like a, a magical amazing record because the songs are so good and like you know it's just so I'm very excited about it it's not done yet uh, I hope to have it done before the end of the year uh, but we did get to show like a little 20 minute clip of it on the anniversary of the album. And that was, people were excited about that and it went really well. And, you know, it's just a big deal for me to like be able to reach out to somebody like Gruff Rees of Super Furry Animals and him be like, yes, I would love to send you a video talking about Olivia Tremor Control because they are that special to me. Yeah. Or like Vanessa from the band Pylon. It's, you know, like, she's like, they're one of my favorite bands of all time, you know, like, oh, no so. Way. Sean Lennon didn't get back to me and Beck didn't get back to me. Yeah, well. <laughs> you know, there, are, there are people that I tried to reach out to that I know that, uh, you know, Sean Lennon I, I has said that he loves Olivia Tremontal. And Beck actually toured, uh, OTC opened for Beck uh, during the Dusky Cubist Castle tour. Oh my uh, God. He was like touring of, it was the end of kind of uh, his first record and it was just kind of kicking off the Odelay stuff and, and right. OTC opened for him. So I was like, I know he knows this record. I know right. he, so I was like, hi, Beck, uh, you know, the Instagram <laughs> messenger. And it's probably like some manager intern being like, I don't, Beck's not going to want to answer this kid. He's like, can you please send me a video talking about Olivia Thermal Control? But <laughs> You know, the worst I can say is no or not. You have to try. So, yeah. well, why not try? But it's been really fun and rewarding to do something of kind of service for somebody else. And it's like, mm. uh, I feel like I've gotten to the point uh, in my life where I need to maybe do that because it's like, it, it, it takes away the ego of it a little bit. And I just want to, uh, this band has given me so much, so many wonderful uh, experiences just listening to their music that I wanted to give something back. And uh, hopefully... The goal of it would be that, you know, at some point there's some 15 year old kid out there, a uh, girl or boy or whatever, who maybe catches a, a glimpse of this on YouTube at some day and be like, wow, this band sounds really cool. And then like finds out about Olivia Sherman Control and it becomes their all time favorite band. So that's the goal of it, I guess. And um, mm. it's been really fun for me to just connect with people too. Uh, who I hadn't met either before the project or people who have been friends for a long time and you know whatever the pandemic year or whatever you just kind of lose contact with people or you just lose contact because you're not touring through their town and you'd be like hey would you want to be uh would you want to do an Olivia Sherman control cover and the, you know they're like oh that sounds so awesome when do you need it by you know like just like and then and then hearing the songs you know like getting to hear these songs that people are sending me and they're songs that I've lived and breathed with for, you know, 25 years of my life. And then hearing a new version of it, it's just, I mean, you know, it's pretty special to me that um, 
I can kind of be the collector of this little project. And uh, I'm so happy that you uh, were involved and submitted a song and a great on air talking about the record too, which I know part of your thing got put in the the 20 minute little teaser, but you know, like you, you, you really went, you're, you're a pro at this. You're a pro at like talking about music and like, so it was, it was great, you know, cause some people are like sending me like little 30 second snippets. Like I love this album. Happy birthday. Olivia Charm control. And yeah. you like went into it like, well, this is like a podcast. I can sit down and like talk about this and da da da. And so uh, I like that I have both, but uh, it's right. nice to have uh, somebody who's like got a nice video set up and like, you know, cause it's homemade. It's like, that was kind of the beauty of it too. It's like, I uh, like Dusky Cuba's Castle, the spirit of it, that, that record was made in lots of different places on four tracks. And, and then it came together in one spot to make this, meld it into this masterpiece. And so hopefully, uh, you know, having somebody send me something from London, a video from London of them talking in, a, in their bedroom, and it sounds, the audio is not as nice as, you know, the, your video that you sent, but we can oh, work hard to meld it together and it'll just be in the spirit of things like uh, hopefully joyous and, and uh, like the album is to me, so. That's what was cool. We had kind of a mini screening party for the teaser here. Because oh, I was awesome. Very excited to see it. it. I mean, if look, if the film is anything like the teaser, it's going to remind people who know the album of the album itself, because it, 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 the way that teaser came together, it had this mix of groundedness and trippiness and the different deliveries of the different people talking and just the way you wove in the music and the animation and all that. It felt a lot like the album. Cool. Well, that's, yeah, I wanted it to be, um, because the album is pretty trippy and uh yeah. but also pretty sunshiny at points so it's yep. like and that the the album is called the unrealized film script of dusky cubist castle you know like that leaves it to like your imagination of what this film script could be right and so saying that this is the realized film is not it's not really the realized film <laughs> but it's the it's the the film that collecting all these parts it's the uh, it's that realized film, you know. Everybody could make their own realized film with this as the soundtrack, and I'm happy I get to attempt it. So well, and why not? Because that's the spirit of the original album and and the band and Elephant Six anyway. You know, like this yeah. is your version of what it should be. You know, what it could be. One question before I wrap, because someone might want to know, since we started with this, how did you end up playing with Max Weinberg? Oh, well, it was 2004 and uh, Poise Control Center was a band in Ames, Iowa, and Ames is a college town, Iowa State University. Uh, and Iowa, of course, unfortunately, except this last time, picks the president. So whatever Iowa picks, that's who's going to be the president. Right. Not this last time. Unfortunately, uh, Iowa did not swing towards Biden. I mean, I voted for Biden, right. uh, <laughs> uh, uh, being blunt. You know, Iowa is, you know, where the, the caucuses and stuff like that. So yeah. every four years uh, to America, Iowa seems pretty important. So in 2004, when John Kerry was running uh, against George W. Bush, his second term, a lot of, you know, people were coming to Ames and Des Moines and, and campaigning and and so the, the young Democrats of Iowa called one day and they were like, hey, uh, Scott Wolf and John Kerry's son, who's of the Heinz 
he's married to the Heinz uh, oh, yeah. lady. So uh, Heinz 57 kid, Scott Wolf from Party of Five, and Max Weinberg are coming to do a rally for John Kerry. And Max wants a band to play with. And I'm thinking to myself, Max Weinberg is not asking for a band to play with. This is their way of being like, I bet Max Weinberg would sit and play with the band. So, uh, of course, we're like, oh, yeah, we'll do it. (laughs) And so uh, it was just funny because uh, recently Poise Control Center had been banned from this venue that it was supposed to be at because we were causing ruckus. And, you know, (laughs) knocking stuff off walls and just being, you know, being 23 year old rock and rollers or something so the owner we're like you know coming into the venue and he's like oh no not you guys no no we're bringing i'm rolling my fender twin reverb in he's like no no now i was like well we're the we're playing with max weinberg tonight the reason there's going to be like 200 people in your you know barn he's like well i'm gonna have complete control you guys are all just gonna have to uh, plug straight into the board so we're all playing like direct input under this board anyway oh it was God. great it was great, yeah. it was great. but wow. you know our drummer uh our normal drummer was not going to play drums because max was so he was playing sax and you know we had oh, a cool. player and trumpet player whatever and max has got like a you know like a bill cosby sweater on he does not look like he's ready to play rock and roll right but right. anyway it's like we're kind of the you know uh supposed to be this entertainment and we're like i get up there i'm like how's everybody want to see max weinberg play some drums and everybody's like yeah (laughs) and so like whatever uh i was like you know be my baby max and of course max knows every rock and roll song ever because he's like been on conan and you know right and so i we picked be my baby because you know it's like we knew that like that's like a uh, Bruce Springsteen loves like Phil Spector type stuff. So oh, we yeah, that, sure. like, boom, 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 sh- boom, boom, you know, nice. so like, let's play Be My Baby. And, you know, he gets up there and of course he does it the right speed. You know, he's like, boom, boom, boom. Sh- and I'm like, pick it the fuck up, Max. You know, like, <laughs> like ready to rock. Uh, so we play Be My Baby and then we play a poise control center song, you know, which he just like, you know, kick, you know, he's a pro, right? So he just kicks right in and he's like, great. And, you know, like I'm up on like the drum set on like the kick drum, like swinging my guitar around and like just being wild Yeah, video of it on YouTube. But um, but it was great, you know, like and he was so sweet to us and like so nice. And he could tell that we were just like fans. And, you know, I'm like, this is the guy who plays on the river. You know, like I'm, you know, like I'm a Bruce fan. And of course, I was a Conan fan. And so we gave him a bunch of like Poise Control Center shirts. He's like, I'll give these to my kids and stuff, you know, like. Oh, man, that's awesome. But he was so sweet and so great. And unfortunately, we didn't rock hard enough because John Kerry did not win that election. No. But, yes. Uh, well. <laughs> so we should have tried harder. But should have tried uh, harder. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a fun night for, you know, a bunch of 23-year-old kids to be playing with. The guy who, you know, not only does he play at Bruce Springsteen and, and Conan O'Brien, but, you know, that's the guy who plays drums on Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf. You know, like this no is a guy. Way. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's cool. Uh, uh, so this is a guy who's, you know, he's he's earned his uh, rock and roll uh, angel wings or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. Wow. That's a guy. I'm going to have to look up that video then. I need to see this. Yeah, I think so. it's I think it's titled Max Weinberg almost gets de- decapitated by the Poise Control Center or something like that. Oh, is that? <laughs> it's only like 13 second video of me just like swinging my guitar around or something. Uh, okay, I'll I'll take it. But, but it's but it's him and it's real, you know. I think that's the fun thing about that time period of like the late 90s early 2000s it's like 
if you do have footage of it, it's real grainy and real crappy. And it makes it look like it was from like 1970. Now that people have like these incredible iPhones that you're like, oh my God, is this professionally shot? You know, like. Yes, I love yeah. that. Yeah. So yeah, any, anything before like 2010 or something is going to look like that. Yeah. Yeah. Which I've discovered finding all this old Olivia Tremor control footage. It's not always of high quality, but the spirit is there. You can feel it, you know? So yeah. That's what they yeah were about. Well, listen, thank you for talking to me. This was so fun. Yeah, such a blast. And uh, congrats on the new music video and all the music you've been making. And the podcast is really great. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on and and being a part of the Olivia Term Control thing. Because thank you for having me. So awesome. Yeah, I can't tell you how excited I am to see the finished product. Just to be a part of it at all is incredible. Well, thank you. It was, you're uh, uh, a huge asset to it. So oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, everyone out there, I'll be putting links down to the, of many of the things that Patrick has done, but please dig even deeper because he's done so much. And uh, the things that I have heard already, just incredible. Uh, thank you all for watching us and for being a part of this. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our talk. I'm sure we could have talked for another two hours. Uh, But until uh, next week, uh, next interview edition, I will talk to you soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.